Hello and welcome to Tonebenders. My name is Tim Muirhead and I will be your host today. Sitting in the co-pilot chair is Teresa Morrow. Teresa, are you upright and ready to go? I'm ready, yeah. It's that kind of year, right? Being upright is all we really need to (laughs) move forward. We have an excellent guest today. We have Julian Slater. He's an Oscar-nominated supervising sound editor whose past films include the recent Jumanji movies, In Bruges, Bad Times at the El Royale, and many more. He also has a long-time working relationship with director Edgar Wright, where he was the sound super on some of my all-time favorite films, like Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and two of the like Mount Rushmore films for me, Baby Driver and Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. It's the 10th anniversary of Scott Pilgrim, so we invited Julian to the show to do a little walk down memory lane and go over the work he did on this really important film for sound. Welcome to the show, Julian. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. I just want to tell you quickly about my relationship to the film Scott Pilgrim, because uh, I live in Toronto, and I essentially was Scott Pilgrim. And that's not something I necessarily say with pride, but uh, I was in a bunch of bands, all the clubs that are featured in the film, I was in crappy bands that played those clubs. I was actually the bass player in a band where I screwed up a relationship with the female drummer, just like Scott Pilgrim did. Uh, I grew up playing Super Mario Brothers, Mortal Kombat, Sonic the Hedgehog. I felt when I left the theater, when I saw it, when it first came out, like some movie studio had spent $85 million making a movie specifically for me like in the venn diagram of who this movie appeals i am the dead center of it so i loved this movie so i I was just wondering what is your relationship to scott pilgrim with uh, 10 years distance from it julian well you know what it's interesting you know getting the email from you a few weeks ago because uh you you work on a movie you know for several months and it's extremely intense and it kind of takes your life over to some degree And then it comes out and you spend the next few weeks kind of following its progress. And then you forget about it. And I kind of had forgotten about it until I got a call from Edgar last year telling me that they were planning this 10th anniversary re-release. You know, they're doing a Dolby Vision remaster of the picture. And I've done a Dolby Atmos, uh, I I say upmix, it's almost like a remix. The way I've done it, I've kind of gone back to the original elements and started from scratch for some of the sequences. So Wow. Yeah, I'd kind of forgotten about it. It's interesting because I moved to America seven years ago and the first thing that a lot of people spoke to me about was Scott Pilgrim and it became uh, quite apparent pretty quickly how much love there is for the movie and the soundtrack, which is very humbling to get that from your your peers over here, certainly from people who you spend your lifetime kind of looking at and respecting and then you get to meet these people and they have a... They have a love and a respect for something you've worked on is it's it's quite an honor it's funny how it turned into kind of a generational touchstone because i i guess it was what you call a sleeper like as a movie that didn't do particularly well upon its release but pretty much anybody i talked to from my age group or thereabouts if you mention that film they're like oh my god i love that movie yeah i yeah and it's weird because like you say i mean it didn't do that well commercially it, you know it was a bit of a surprise you know how it did in the box office and yet 10 years later here we are of the movies of that year it's it's a movie that's being talked about and it's a movie that's getting re-released and it's a movie that people have a genuine affection for and a love for so um it's weird how things turn out really i think it must be certainly connected to the fact that 
the films that Edgar Wright has put out since then. What was started in some ways with Scott Pilgrim was amplified and and refined in uh, his subsequent movies. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting going back to it and remixing, upmixing, remixing the big sequences in the movie. I was doing the Roxy Richter nightclub fight a couple of weeks ago. He really doesn't know. Wait. Mm. You and her? It was just a phase. Just a phase? You had a sexy phase? I was reminded of the kind of syncopation that we did with all her vocals and the whips of her belt were all in time with the dance track. The Lee has spoken! Well, then Gideon best get his pretentious ass up here because I'm about to kick yours out of the Great White North. There's Stephanie's stuff in that movie that uh, we used as a resource when we thought about doing Baby Driver, you know, seven, eight years later. So I'm sure Edgar would say the same thing. You know, he's learning as he goes along and so am I. Let's, uh, since you're somewhat familiar with the film, again, from uh, the work you're doing on the re-release, let's kind of dig into a couple moments in the film. The first one I wanted to talk about is the moment where Ramona and Knives meet for the first time. So it's in a club, it's before the bands have gone on, and kind of sonically, without really seeing it, you have built a sound check kind of going on in the background. And the feedback moments and the drum mic check double as emotional touchstones of what's happening. For instance, when Scott runs away at the end, someone starts sound checking the bass drum. And you can't really tell if it's a bass drum sound check or if it's his heartbeat exploding as he it's runs both. away from the stress yeah. of the moment. Yeah. Exactly. It's both. Was that in the script or did you come up with that out of whole cloth? Like it's re- it's one of those things that you don't even really notice the first time you watch it because it just seems so perfect. A lot of it comes from Edgar. It sounds a little precious, and I'm sorry if it does, but I feel like with Edgar's <laughs> movies, they are kind of sonic onions. We put stuff in there that isn't necessarily noticeable on your first or second watch, but you discover them on second, third, fourth watches. Hey. This is my boyfriend, Jimmy. Hey. Oh, and this is Knives. Hey. Hey. (laughs) So, do you like? Well, I, uh... Go. Okay, this next band is from Brampton, and they are Crash and the Boys. And a lot of the crew were musicians, so we rented a rehearsal room for a day. Uh, Dan played guitar, one of the assistants played bass, we had a drum set, and we just spent the day recording feedback. You know, we there, there's a temptation... It's like the the, the Hollywood Edge cat, the wow that everyone hears, that is the one that everyone uses. There's that feedback that from I think it's from Larger Than Life that was used to death. Oh, we've all heard it. And yes, I des- we we all know it, and um, because it was visually so unique, I desperately wanted this movie to sound unique and for it to have as little library stuff as possible. And so even the feedbacks, all the drum hits, everything, we spent a day in rehearsal room and just played around and fucked about with all the instruments and just came up with sonic stuff that at the time you don't know if it's going to work or not, but it was just experimentation. And that's kind of what we did for the whole thing. We just, 
we desperately wanted to create everything from scratch. You know, the vegan police ray guns, the Lucas Lee skateboard stuff, everything was shot from scratch, even the coins. I remember us, you know, going to the bank and getting an obscene amount of uh, British coins and, and spending an afternoon recording them falling and swishing around. And, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the fun stuff, right? That's what we all love doing, creating stuff from scratch. What was the surface you used to drop the coins on? Do you remember? I think we did various. I mean, that was the thing. We, well, I'm you sure, know, yeah. we, you know, Wh- which ones work the best, though? I guess. I, I, I'd be lying if I told you I could remember. <laughs> I, I <laughs> um, but when it works, it works. You know that thing when you're going through the recordings afterwards and you get that eureka moment when that's the one. That's the thing that works. That's the satisfaction of doing stuff from scratch. You hit upon that thing that you just know is the one that's going to work. You know, I had an amazing sound crew and all long-term collaborators james harrison jimmy boyle dan morgan ben meachin gerard lorette all people who added their layer to the cake and as much as it's lovely for me to sit here 10 years later to talk about it the soundtrack of that movie would be nothing without everyone's input edgar creates this amazing sonic playground on every movie and they're they vary and they are different he's kind of the only director who is so tuned in to what sound can do that he creates this framework first but then gives you total freedom within the framework he creates the infrastructure and then hands it over to me and my team and says okay now you take it and run with it so the avid tracks from edgar and paul matchless are the most complex avid tracks and afs you will ever see i remember doing the first temp where there were glass smashes and glass clinks on eye blinks it takes a lot to get your head around how much there is and get into it as quickly as possible. Because when you hit that first temp, you're trying to collate all those things together and stay on top of every little detail. But it, it, it certainly all comes from Edgar's head and it's his vision. And we hang on to the coattails and try and do service to what he's trying to get across. I think a lot of people maybe have the idea that, it, oh, it was the sound designer who had all of the ideas when we talk to sound designers on the show, they're always like, oh, well, you know, the really foundational stuff was in the script. If you had a director that has a really strong auditory sensibility, they're putting that stuff in the script. So I'm kind of interested in how that stuff is discussed when you guys are reviewing the script, like even before you start shooting, maybe. If, yeah. If, were you involved before they started shooting Scott Pilgrim? Yes, yeah. Um, m- most times I have a discussion with Edgar Um, before he shoots and I recall I assembled a bunch of 8-bit punches and impacts for him to play with on set months later after it had been shot and we sat down and we had a rough cut of the movie as an example of what the sound designer does we realized very quickly that all the game sounds that we wanted to use there's no there was going to be no chance in hell of getting clearance for them I think from memory the only game sound effect that is in the movie is the Sonic the Hedgehog ring ping. Everything else has been created from scratch. And that was Jimmy Boyle. Jimmy Boyle found, I think it was in Canada, some guy selling these synthesizers made out of old Atari consoles. And he purchased one, got it shipped over, and he spent days playing with various settings and coming up with all these... 8-bit sound-alikes that were not taken from any games, but you don't realise that. It sounds like they're all authentic from various games, but they weren't. 
And likewise, all the punches, the punches are 8-bit punches. But of course, when you take an 8-bit punch, it actually sounds pretty terrible when you play it on a <laughs> full-range speaker system. So Jimmy did this amazing thing where a lot of the punches, he was doing beatboxing into a mic and beat crushing it. So the punches were... Again, that's a good example. Edgar's making this framework and he knows what he wants it to sound like. And then he passes it on to us. And then we've got to try and scratch our heads and figure out ways to do it and ways to hopefully expand on what it is that Edgar's thinking of. Watch out! It's that one guy. Again, you know, revisiting it, I was reminded of, you know, every Evil X battle scene is a sonically different sounding thing than what came before it. The Matthew Battelle punches sound different to the Todd Ingram punches. And the Lucas Lee punches sounded very Indiana Jones, Hollywood, over the top. Whereas the Matthew Battelle sounds as if they were 8-bit punches, but they weren't 8-bit punches. But yeah, each fight sequence is sonically a different thing than the one that came before. It's a it's a sonic progression as you go through the movie. You completely stole my next question. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. It was, how did you find the sonic voice for the seven different fight scenes was my next question. Right, well, I mean... <laughs> but we can dig further into that for sure. Um, for instance, you brought up the, uh, the Roxy fight and her uh, articulated sword. I'm not really even sure what that weapon would be called, but it sounded super cool. The metal of uh, her whipping this kind of half sword, half whip around. That, again, that was Jimmy Boyle. So there was myself, there was Dan Morgan, who was the dialogue editor, and then we had two, I guess, effects editors, and Jimmy was the main sound designer. Because I think what we did is Edgar wanted to do a studio playback. It was an unofficial temp mix, and it was purely for the studio to see. It wasn't for an audience. And I remember mixing till like three o'clock in the morning, and uh, the pressure was on to come up with a sound for Roxy's Bell. And I said to Jimmy, I said, look, do what you can. I don't expect anything amazing to see what you can do. And within 24 hours, he'd gone home and got his kitchen knives out, got his portable recorder and put them all on his worktop and individually flicked each knife to make the knife sounds. He then sampled them and combined them with, you know, several other things. And within 24 hours, he came up with that the whole sequence of how her belt sounded and that's how it stayed until the final mix and it wasn't t it wasn't touched there's a moment in the scene near the beginning when knives comes to their practice in their living room for the first time and uh, there's just little details in that scene and the way you guys use sound effects even the foley or the, the prop sound are following the tempo of the cut and it's subtle, it's not in your face, it's just like this kind of background thing. Uh, yeah, and I'd say that's kind of an Edgar signature, sonic signature, all the way since Shaun of the Dead. I've been, you know, I've been very lucky to work with Edgar on every one of his movies. And I can think of examples of that in every movie where he, what he calls the diegetic sounds, where he likes to use diegetic sounds off screen to reinforce what is happening on screen. And it's... Uh, it's never an accident. You know, there's been a lot of planning and thinking and all those things to, for those to work and for them, to, you know, because you try these various things and quite often they don't work and you go through various iterations until you find the one that does work. But yeah, that's very much a, 
an Edgar thing of of utilizing. He thinks about sound very uniquely. He understands the power of sound and what it can do, even if it's not featured at that moment necessarily in the soundtrack. There's always something going on in the background that is reflecting what's happening on screen. And when, so when you're working on it, like even in the scenes where there isn't a score that's kind of setting a tempo, but mm-hmm. there there kind of is a beat to the way it's cut or there's like it's ramping into uh, a piece of music that's coming. Do you have a sense of the tempo that's trying to be set? Well, so the music editor on this movie was some guy called Stephen Price who... <laughs> went on to become Edgar's uh, composer and obviously did Gravity and Fury and Suicide Squad. And, uh, he, we were all in this building. We were all set up in a building together. So we were uh, just north of Oxford Street and you had the visual effects team, you had Edgar, you had the two editors, two picture editors, the music editor and additional composition, I think Steve did, and all us guys together. Now, what that means is that there is a complete fluid line of communication between every department. So at any given time, I could walk into the VFX supervisor and say, hey, what are you going to do for this shot here? And they could show me a rough draft and send it down to the pitch department and they could turn it over. And likewise, Steve being a music editor who was also a composer could help out with all that kind of stuff. So there was a constant dialogue between all the departments. And it, like, like I say, with, with Steve being there, he would help with all that kind of stuff with like, trying to set up tempos and, you know, he's more musically minded than I am, of course. So um, to have that as a resource, you know, really helped for those kind of se- those sequences. Especially in this film, like the interplay between what's going on on stage with like actual real human beings playing music <laughs> and yeah. the bands and the score and the effects are kind of like score-ish and it's constantly coming and going all the time like it's just such a it seems like such a tricky thing to accomplish it was hard there's no doubt about it i mean i i look back with rosy tinted glasses now it was enjoyable but it was a tough movie to do and i remember the first time i saw the first cut of it being totally blown away the 8-bit and the gaming part of it and the striking visuals that i was just totally blown sideways my reaction was and and to be fair this kind of happens quite often with Edgar movies I see it and I have a rush of excitement followed by a, a huge uh, gut feeling of oh my god how do I do this justice um, when you see something like that you want to do it the justice that it deserves to be honest with you sometimes it's scary because um at that moment when you see the cut for the first time i feel like you're at the bottom of a mountain and it's just up all the way and but it's baby steps you take the first step and you start discovering what's going to work and what's not going to work then you take the next step and it's you know i'd love to say here after i guess i've been doing this nearly 30 years someone referred to me as a veteran the other day which kind of shocked me I'd like to say that you know I can now come to it with a zen-like approach and know exactly what I'm going to do or how it's going how we're going to crack this particular nut not at all it's it's all about experimentation and what works on one movie and what works on one Edgar Wright movie doesn't necessarily work on the next Edgar Wright movie you know when people ask me what's your piece of advice for you know people trying to get into the industry 
just experiment. There is no right, there is no wrong. Well, along with experiment, you also need a bit of time to be able to find out what's working and what's not working. Do you recall what the schedule was? Were you guys working 40-hour days or was this... Uh... At times, yeah. I had the the amazing opportunity to go to Comic-Con with Edgar where he previewed the movie, where he, the, it got its world premiere because he wanted me to set up the theatre. So I was on the movie for almost a year, which is the longest I've ever been on a movie. Now, that wasn't sound design for a year. That was like from the start to doing Comic-Con. But I, I think we were on it for something like as a sound crew, solidly six months. And like with any movie, you know, it's ebbs and flows. As you get towards a temp mix, you're doing crazy, insane hours and working unhealthy hours, shall we say. And then, you know, the week afterwards when it's previewing, you kind of get to sit back and chill a bit more and think about everything that went into that tent mix and strategize for how to move forward again. We had a good amount of time and we had the budget to have a bunch of people. And to be honest with you, you know, obviously budgets are getting smaller these days and going through those tracks again uh, as I did for this mix recently and seeing the units and looking at the tracks and seeing how everything was created from scratch, it kind of, it reminded me of why it is important to battle for your budget if you can to get the crew that you want and you need to do service to a, to a production like this. Well, you obviously picked the right crew because we've mentioned a few names and they've all gone on to uh, bigger things. Yeah. So uh, it's quite the crew that you assembled. You know, it's funny, I'm actually working with a, a couple of them now on Edgar's next movie. I'm currently sitting here in my home in LA and I fly to London tomorrow to start mixing Edgar's next movie. And, you know, a lot of the crew are the same because when you have good crew that you can trust and you know what they're capable of and they knock it out the park for you, you hold on to them. And, you know, Edgar's been the same. He's a very loyal director. He has the same uh, production designer that he's used for years, the same picture editors, uh, me, Stephen Price. There's a familiarity there, which means that we don't have to try and figure out how each other dances. We just, we can hit the ground running. We know what each other's, we all have strengths, we all have weaknesses. And when you know what those strengths and weak, I'm talking the sound crew, we can plan for it and we can we can attack it from the from the get-go. You uh, mentioned you're going to uh, be going to mix the next Edgar Wright film. What was your role on the mix stage for Scott Pilgrim? I didn't mix it. That was, so the two mixers who I should equally shout out, Chris Burden and Doug Cooper. That was the last movie of Edgar's that I did not mix. I then went into the mix chair on World's End, which was the next one. I was your straight up, sound supervisor sitting in between Doug and Chris and giving input on how I thought it would sound, but I wasn't actually pushing the faders at that point in my career. It's a fun question we like to ask supervising sound editors, but were you the kind of supervising sound editor that like sits right up at the board and tells them uh, what what's where, or do you sit at the back of the room and kind of uh, let them feel their way through it? No, I was always up the front with my, opi <laughs> with my opinions, for better or for worse. <laughs> You know, now being a mixer for other sound supervisors, different sound supervisors have their own styles. You, I've worked with supervisors whose opinion is, look, I've got it this far, now it's your job to take it over and do your thing. I'm going to sit at the back, holler if you need me, which is a valid approach. And there are other supervisors who sit next to me and who are on it and say to, and know exactly what they want it to be like. And each role is valid in its own way. And so you're mixing the effects? 
I, well, I kind of shift around. On, on Last Night in Soho, I'm doing the dialogue and music. On Baby Driver, I did the effects and the music because they were so entwined together. For sure. Uh, on Jumanji, I do effects and foley. So I kind of, I bob and I'm a Swiss army knife. Jack of all trades, master of none, some would say. Interesting. Do you have a preference? I do. I like to do dialogue and music now. So, you know, I, I either mix shows that I've supervised or co-supervised. And if that's the case, I've already kind of gone through the effects and the sound design. And I, I know how it's going to be. So that I swing on to the, ideally, the dialogue and the music. Or if it's a show that um, I'm not supervising and I'm coming in from the cold, I prefer to do the dialogue and music just because I've... Effects has been my my kind of my thing for the last 25 years and I just enjoy the the different strategic discipline of mixing dialogues it's a different it's a different thing altogether to this to the effects I mean I still do effects but you know um, the other project that I'm going to mix in England they said to me what would you like to do and I said well I would I would prefer to do dialogue and music so that's that's what I'm doing on the two shows in England, dialogue and music. Sometimes, what, you know, it's what, whatever is right for the, for the movie. Um, so Scott Pilgrim is going to be re-released in theaters. Is that the plan? I believe I so. I mean, COVID situation is going to yeah, exactly. be. Exactly. I, I hope so. There are Atmos upmixes where you basically take the stems and you do a bit of moving around here and there. But Universal, to their credit, gave me the time that I requested to go back to the units and kind of remix it from scratch as if it was a Atmos movie. So I think it sounds great. And I've done two versions. I've done a home Atmos mix and I've done a theatrical Atmos mix. I, and I think they are. I, I heard last week that despite COVID, at some point it will get a theatrical re-release. Great. Which... Well, I would love to dig into some of your observations or things that you came across while you were doing the Atmos mixes. If there's any kind of like special moments that you'd like to talk about what you did differently or what you were able to do in, in Dolby Atmos. That, yeah. Yeah, what, what it we... allowed you to add. Well, obviously, you know, you've got the objects. So anything that pans around the theater, you've got height. I don't, you, when I'm mixing Atmos, I've kind of, my, my I've learned myself, and this doesn't necessarily apply to other mixes. I don't use the heights in the bed. I'm seven one plus objects. Um, and if I need height, I'll throw it up into the objects up above. Um, so obviously, coins raining down, you can do from the height up above. There's a there's a moment in the Roxy fight where she said lazy ass lazy ass lazy ass and it goes round the theatre and I was never happy in five one with how that sounded and of course when you've got you objects you've got many more speakers you get a much more cohesive surround so lots of that stuff and the clarity the music I put in the objects the whole score when I mix Atmos I kind of tend to do the score bring it in objects and just bring it off the screen a little bit not so that it's distracting, but just so that it's a little bit more immersive. So I took all the score and, and placed that in the objects. And then, yeah, just having fun with it. You've got to be disciplined. There's no point in just throwing things around for the sake of throwing things around. And I've also learned that with Atmos, it is a delicate balance of how it sounds in your mix chair to how it sounds down the front row when you're going to see it in a cinema. So, um, I try and be, at, at some points, slightly conservative with it, um, and yet 
you know, try and maximise the, the format as much as possible. Was there anything that you came across while you were mixing where you were just like, we did that really well the first time around? Does it sound really uh, terrible if I say all of it? I mean, I was, I was, I mean, no, I, was, I, I can I, see and, that. Yeah. And, and I, and I say this about everyone else's work, not my own, but I, I was genuinely struck with how good it sounds. It, like I say, you kind of forget years after you, you forget about all the intricacies and the multi layers that go into it. And then I had a, I had to have a bit of a search because I wanted to get hold of the original sound effects sessions, the sound design sessions, and we couldn't find them. I hadn't kept them, none of the crew had kept them, and Universal didn't have it in their archive. So I thought, well, this is not going to work. And then I happened to contact Gerard, who's my, who was my assistant at the time, who now is not even in the business. And I went on to Facebook. I don't really do Facebook. And I happened to instant message him and say, I don't suppose. And within 24 <laughs> hours, he came back and said, yes, I've got them on a drive. And so I cracked open the sessions and was just blown away by the work that everyone had done. And like I say, it's easy to forget about it. And, and listen, I'm, I'm obviously proud of everything that I'm involved in, but there is definitely something special about Scott Pilgrim as, uh, you know, here we are 10 years later talking about it. And I'm not just talking about the sound design, just as a, as a piece of cinematic marvellousness. There is something special about it that, that seems to... And it doesn't age at all. You know, I showed my two boys it. I have a nine-year-old and a 12-year-old. And at no point does it show its age in the slightest, other than the fact there are no iPhones. <laughs> it, it is aged extremely well. When it first came out, I 100% related to Scott Pilgrim, like the character. And now that I'm older and have kids... I relate a lot more to knives. Like, why is he such a jerk to knives? Scott? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Grow up, you stupid idiot. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. I, I I understand what you're saying. There is definitely, um, as we get older, you identify with different characters, and you know, knives. Knives sure. is hard done by bless her, and he doesn't. In the end, he doesn't actually go off with her. He goes off with Ramona, of course, and she, poor old knives is left there. So you did a theatrical Atmos, and then you did a separate home Atmos mix. Uh -huh. um, can you talk a little bit about what the differences are for you? Well, you know, I've no idea how many people have Atmos in their home. I mean, I genuinely don't. I've spent a lot of time doing these home theatre mixes where ultimately the thing that annoys me when I'm watching a movie at home is the having to turn it up and turn it down the whole time. And so the first thing I want to do is I monitor actually a bit quieter than I probably should do. Primarily, the first thing, to make sure all the words come through. And once you've set your level, you're not spending your time going up and down. So you're squashing the mix first and foremost. And then you're just carefully tweaking it to make sure that you're getting the most out of it. You know, most people, I feel, when they're sitting at home, they're sitting on the couch and the surrounds are pretty close to their ears. That's how I feel most people have their setup. So... I like to take my time to make sure that the surrounds are not overpowered because if I just leave the surrounds as they are in the theatrical, they'll kind of get a bit too dominant. Are you are you using um, like a, a home Atmos box to check your mix? Yeah, well, not uh, we. So we use near field monitors. Yeah, we have smaller near field monitors to mix on. Yeah, it's a theatre that has been designed purely for home Atmos mixing. Okay. So I had five days to do the theatrical mix, which is a good amount of time. And I had four days then to do the home 
Atmos mix. I, I have to give props to Universal for giving me the time uh, and ergo spending the money. And they gave me prep time to go through a few weeks of going through prepping the tracks. So I did that first. Spent two weeks going through, splitting stuff off, deciding editorially what I wanted to do mix-wise and then implementing it on the mix stage over five days. I love that you went back and were happy with your work from 10 years ago because I think if you ask most of us if we wanted to open up a session from 10 years <laughs> from ago like 10 months ago. It, it sounds like uh, most of us would be like, no, nah, I'm good. I don't need to look at that. I, <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I'm, listen, I'm not saying that would happen with every show that I opened up. And it was Pro Tools, I think it was Pro Tools 10. So uh, maybe it's Pro Tools 9 and it was Pro Tools 10 when we were doing the deliverables. I remember getting coloured regions yeah, at some point 10 years ago and thinking, oh my God, this is amazing. <laughs> we had three rigs for the effects. We had sound design rig, we had regular spot effects and BGs, and then we had another rig that was the fight sequences. So um, there was three rigs running. It was, that's how many tracks there were. So there was a fair bit of data to come over from England for me to open up and figure out what was what. But once I got there, it kind of worked pretty seamlessly. So uh, you mentioned that you worked on a lot of uh, all of Edgar's films since Shaun of the Dead. How did you two first meet? You know what? I'm not entirely sure. I used to have my own facility in London, my own kind of post-production facility. And we did a lot of comedy, a lot of quite edgy comedy that was sound orientated. I used to work with this guy called Chris Morris who did this TV series called Brass Eye where he would do something like he'd do a sketch that was called Drug School which was literally filmed on 8mm film and the spoof was kids were sent to a, a school to take drugs so that they could cope <laughs> with drugs later on in life. And Chris was very insistent about how authentic it, was, it would sound. So we would, you know, we'd dub it once, put it on to, to mag pull the mag off and then pour tea over it, stamp on it, get dropouts and then lace it back up and re-record it with dropouts. I think that Edgar had seen these kind of comedy things and realised that they were comedy with perhaps sound that was a little over and above what you normally get. I hadn't really done a big movie. I did Leaving Las Vegas, which was a very art house movie, and I remember the buzz I got from working on a movie that had the Universal logo because after that point, I'd done a lot of esoteric uh, Peter Greenaway, Mike Figgis movies and movies that, to be frank with you, I'd spend six months on and no one would ever hear of. I, I distinctly remember being sent the script for Shaun of the Dead and then seeing the first cut of it and just realising that this was something that was a completely different beast to anything that I'd been involved with. All of his films are profoundly original and the soundtracks... Uh, to me, profoundly original uh, and fresh. And I think, like, that's why they bear repeated viewings is because there is so much to pick up on. Yeah, and I am a very lucky person. I feel like I'm pretty good at what I do and I love what I do. But to have a director like Edgar, and, you know, I said this to him, look at his canon of work. Just, just take the first movie that he did in the last movie. Look at Shaun of the Dead and Baby Driver. That's two incredibly original movies on their own, let alone throwing in Scott Pilgrim and Hot Fuzz. You know, to have a director who is that talented, original, loyal, um, 
and a, and a great guy, I don't take lightly and I am very blessed to have that relationship. And the, the genre hopping is amazing. Like you get to work on a horror film, you get to work on an action film, you get to work on a cop film, you get to work on a science yeah. fiction film almost. Yeah, yeah. I, it's funny. My, in this lockdown period, me and my boys have been doing a lot of cinema watching and I've used it to try and educate them away from, and this is nothing against, but they, you know, they are all about the Marvel movies, which is great. And we love going to the cinema. But I've used this opportunity to show them that there's perhaps other movies you know, as they get older. And Chris Nolan is some, we've, we've uh, The Prestige is the only one we've yet to, um, to watch. And Chris is, the Chris Nolan movies are kind of the same. You know, you've got superhero stuff, you've got the Batman stuff, you've got science fiction, you've got Memento. You know, these are directors who can turn their hand to different genres and that obviously that's the joy of what we do right every every job that we do is different to the next if i can spend my career doing a jumanji half the year and a baby driver the other half or a in bruges and a hot fuzz that's that old pinch yourself i can't believe i'm being paid to do this again sounds cliche but it's true one of the one of my favorite moments in the whole movie is the very first shot, the Universal logo. Yeah. The theme rewritten in 8-bit. I mean, it's just such a small thing, but it's just one of my favorite little details in the whole film. So should we mention the soundtrack is being or has been re-released on vinyl? I think they're re-releasing the computer game as well, the Scott Pilgrim computer the, game I yeah, read somewhere. Yeah, Ubisoft has picked up the computer game as well, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. like, there might be a new wave of uh, Scott Pilgrim fans out there. Bring it on, Scott Pilgrim 2, the return. Well, thank you very much for talking to us today. You've been a great guest. And uh, to be honest with you, we're not normally so gushing with praise when we do these <laughs> interviews. So it's probably only been five movies in my life where after you leave the theater, your like, adrenaline is still pumping and you're just like so excited about what you just saw. And uh, when that happens, it's something that uh, I really cherish. And thank you for the, <laughs> the role you played in making that happen. Well, thank you for asking me to come on and, um, and, and chinwag with you about it. It's, it's you know, <laughs> as you can tell, it's something that I'm very proud of. And ultimately, I just think it's great that 10 years later, people are still talking about it in, in such fond terms. It's, it's, it's great. Film Bitters is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Thanks for listening. Especially cool for us because, like, where I'm sitting right now in Toronto, I am across the street from the Rocket Club. How cool is that? I've always wanted to go to Toronto. I've always wanted to go to Canada. I've yet to go. Well, if you make it to Toronto, uh, we'll we'll buy the drinks. We'll buy a slice of pizza pizza. That's a deal. <laughs> that is a deal, sir. <laughs>